1: Joining me today for my 25th plus healthcare related, or excuse me, climate crisis related interview is University of St. Thomas Engineering Professor John Abraham to discuss rapidly rising ocean temperatures and resulting climate and health consequences. Professor Abraham, welcome to the program.
0: It's a pleasure to be on. Thanks, David.
1: Uh, Professor Abraham's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Briefly on background, media reporting concerning the climate crisis and related health effects are most frequently in context of weather disasters, wildfires, and extreme heat events. Unfortunately, seldom if ever are these related uh, to others uh, discussed in context of rising ocean temperatures. Last week, research published in Advances in Atmospheric Sciences concluded for the sixth consecutive year, ocean temperatures in 2021 reached record levels compared to 2020 2021 ocean temperatures, despite an ongoing La Niña event, were 14 Zetajoules warmer. And I'll leave it to our guests to unpack what a zettajoule is. Beyond rising ocean levels, warming ocean waters significantly contribute to climate crisis and, in turn, worsening human health effects. With that, again, to discuss rising ocean temperatures and consequences thereof is University of St. Thomas Professor John Abraham. So that, John, is a very brief uh, background. You're the second author of, I counted over 20, uh, of this AAS article. So let me ask you if you could say more about what you and your colleagues uh, learned or what you found, uh, what you published in the in the article.
0: Absolutely. And thanks for the opportunity. <clears throat> As you pointed out in that introduction, we measured ocean temperatures. Uh, and we this is something that we do on an annual basis and each year we tr- well each year we try to publish our results and compare the uh, how uh, compare each year's ocean temperatures to the prior years and it turns out the oceans have been warming uh, year after year after year as expected uh, along with global warming what th- what people may not realize is that uh, the oceans take up about 90% of the global warming heat That is, our uh, Earth has a fever. We're gaining more heat than we're losing. As a consequence, the Earth temperature is rising. Most of that heat ends up in the oceans. So if you want to know how fast the Earth is warming, you have to measure the oceans. And what I like to say is global warming is really ocean warming. Now, the reason why the oceans are so important is because they are vast. Oceans cover about 70% of the surface of the planet, and they are very deep, uh, thousands of meters deep. And so they are a reservoir that heat can flow into. Now, uh, we, it's not easy to measure ocean temperatures as your audience has no doubt experienced. You can measure the temperature of a person by putting a thermometer into their body and trying to get an estimate of the core body temperature of someone to see if they have a fever. The ocean's a bit different because the temperature varies dramatically uh, as you move across the globe. So to make accurate measurements, you need a lot of thermometers making a lot of measurements They have to be spread out around the globe, and they have to measure to great depths in the oceans. And so we incorporated the most advanced ocean temperature sensors, and we collected data over the year, and we found how fast the ocean's warming, and we also found out whether it was warming faster in some areas or slower in other areas. As you mentioned, we found that uh, warming was measured in zeta-joules. Now, that's a crazy word that you might want to use at a cocktail party um, because it's obscure. But it's basically a one with 21 zeros after it. So 14, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, I could go on and on, joules. And a joule is just a unit of energy. Right. That it, it, It's a bit mind-bending and hard to put in perspective. So I like to use an analogy uh, in terms of atomic bombs. If you think about the the bomb dropped on Hiroshima at the end of World War II or near the end of World War II, uh, it had a tremendous amount of energy. It turns out we are warming the oceans. I hope you're sitting down, David, at the rate of seven Hiroshima bombs detonated in the ocean every second of every minute, of every hour, of every day, of every week, of every month for the entire year, seven Hiroshima bombs of energy every second it's a mind blowing number, so we there there is no doubt that the Earth is warming, and we use these ocean measurements to to determine how fast the Earth is warming and uh, our results were in in some respects expected, but they are also dire uh, and and the ocean warming has tremendous consequences to society, both infrastructure, to human health, to biodiversity and to weather patterns around the world. And so it's not just an academic exercise to measure ocean warming, but it has tremendous social, economic and biodiversity consequences.
1: Okay, thank you. In your in your article and this and I will post uh, with this uh, audio and that's your last week uh, piece in The Guardian. You stated that the amount of energy, meaning warming, twenty-one over twenty, is equal to a hundred and forty-five times greater than the world's entire electricity generation, which you say is about a half a zeta joule. So you're right. Speaking of mind-blowing uh, heating, so let's let's go into uh, the effects. You mentioned uh, infrastructure, healthcare, biodiversity, weather, etc. So uh, as you're well aware, and I've cited these, so I'll just note this uh, generically, these are the, the UN IPCC reports, but these IPCC reports have noted for several years, warming ocean temperatures are responsible for several uh, substantive or substantial problems. Uh, I'll just note a couple of coral uh, reef bleaching uh, and uh, coral fish are responsible for are feeding about uh, half a million people. Or marine life, actually, in some, is responsible for over feeding over three and a half billion uh, people, uh, supercharging cyclones and hurricanes, uh, uh, as well a greater precipitation, flooding, storm surges, etc., rising sea elevations. But let me let's start with this issue of increasing ocean acidity. This one I find uh, truly frightening. So, could you explain to us what is occurring, or how and why oceans are becoming? more acid and what effect that has oh boy so if you're not
0: depressed enough about the warming of (laughs) the oceans then you have to know about the evil twin brother of ocean warming and that is ocean acidification now uh, let me just start with something we're all familiar with um in minnesota we call it pop in the rest of the world we call it soda right uh soda is a carbonated beverage And when you open a soda, you get that fizz and you get that sort of spicy flavoring. Uh, That's carbon dioxide. And in fact, uh, you can now make your own soda at home with various products. Uh, The way a soda works is you inject carbon dioxide into water and it dissolves in the water. And when you do that, you actually change the acidity or the pH level of the water. Now, we're doing the same thing in the oceans. We have increased the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere by about 45%. That's just due to human effects. And there's so much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that it's beginning, it it is absorbing into the ocean waters and we're changing the chemistry of the ocean. So why do we care about that? Well, you, you would care if you were a sea creature, especially one that makes a calcium carbonate shell. It is harder to keep your shell uh, formed and it's harder to form your shell under acidic conditions so as we change the chemistry we're putting an added stress on marine life and when you <laughs> add that stress to the increased temperatures you're making it harder for sea creatures to survive in the areas that they've evolved to and in some cases they're at risk of dying out and in other cases they are forced to migrate if they can migrate to areas that are more hospitable so Ocean acidification is the, uh, in, in my mind, is actually one of the biggest concerns about climate change, maybe even more than weather, uh, because it does threaten the food chain of the oceans that we rely upon. And you pointed out how many people rely upon nutrition from the oceans. So ocean acidification is a major, major concern, and it is, it's related to but separate from the increased temperature concern that we've been talking about.
1: Right. So thank you. I I have in my notes, and correct me if I'm wrong here, and and these read, ocean waters become 30% more acidic over the past 200 years, faster than any known change in ocean chemistry in the last 50 million years. And if CO2, and I think I read this uh, following sentence from one of your earlier Guardian pieces or elsewhere, if CO2 emissions are not curtailed, acidity is expected to rise 150% by the year 2050. So, um, again, these numbers are, to say the least, uh, concerning. Uh, there is also an effect that I've read uh, on increasing ocean acidity as it relates to the ability of plant plankton in oceans uh, to uh, provide oxygen or create oxygen, uh, and that the problem is that uh, their ability to produce oxygen could be substantially curtailed. Is that correct? You know, that might be, I, I, to be honest, Uh, Plankton and its
0: life cycle is a bit outside of my expertise, but I will tell you this, um, to the extent that we are stressing creatures and whether they're animals or whether they're plant life that live in the ocean and those animals and plants create the environment that um, allows other sea creatures to live to the extent that we're threatening that environment and, and threatening animals that make up the food chain, both for humans and, and for other animals in the ocean, it's a big, big problem. But I, to be honest with you, I can't confirm those numbers just because it's outside of my area of expertise, but it's, those sound reasonable.
1: Okay, thank you. Let's go to – so you mentioned these four issues, uh, categories, infrastructure, human health, biodiversity, weather. So let's consider having covered biodiversity. Let's go to um, weather, and in our back-and-forth emails, I, uh, I mentioned to you this, and I've read, but I don't understand, so really, uh, this is maybe more for myself. But this is this issue of the Atlantic meridional Overturning Circulation, AMOC. So this is uh, this issue where um, oceans control the Earth's weather, um, and when you change ocean temperature, that changes uh, atmospheric wind currents. And this gets us to this AMOC, uh, issue. And amongst other concerns is that, um, the effect might be or is uh, an increase in storms and heat waves in Europe. Um, now I know this is a massively complicated scientific, uh, reality, but if you can give us the, um, abridged version of how does this, how does this circulation effect occur? And what weather effects, and already being measured, is it having?
0: Oh, boy, that's a great question. And to answer that, I'm going to split out the question into two parts because there's really two two issues that are related but uh, non overlapping. Please do. First of all, forget ocean currents and forget the AMOC for right now. Let's just talk about the warming of ocean waters.
1: Okay.
0: As ocean waters warm, because they cover 70% of our planet, They are really good at transferring their heat and their moisture to the air. And warm, humid air is the breeding ground of storms. That's why we get, uh, you know, in, in Minnesota in the winter where it's cold and dry, we don't get thunderstorms. And until this year, we didn't get tornadoes. We actually had our first tornadoes in December here in Minnesota uh, in 2021. But typically, it's too cold for tornadoes. But you do get intense storms when it's warm and humid. So as we heat up the ocean, and remember, it's covering 70% of our planet, we are warming and wetting the atmosphere. And as a result of that, it's like we're going to have weather on steroids. We've given the atmosphere that extra juice to create more intense storms so what kind of weather patterns are we talking about i'll give you a few examples hurricanes and cyclones as these big storms uh, pass over water they gather their fuel their fuel is the warm water and the warmer the water is the more intense that these storms can be and that means that they are bigger so they have a larger diameter and can hit a larger area they rain harder which means you have more inland flooding Their winds are greater, so you have bigger storm surge and bigger wind damage. And in addition, you have all of that stuff happening on top of an already rising sea level. So that's a conspiracy of factors that are making storms more severe when there's warmer uh, water that they pass over. But let's say that you live away from the coast uh, so I'm in Minnesota, which is pretty far away from the coast. We're, um, the weather here is still being impacted by warming oceans. In fact, the weather everywhere, I don't care if you're in the middle of Siberia, in the middle of the United States, I don't care where you are. Your weather is already being impacted by global warming and by warming seas. And what that means inland is the greater likelihood for su- certain types of storms to occur over a longer period of time so what i mean by that is in minnesota we've traditionally i'm just using minnesota as an example sure. we've had a tornado season that extended from spring to fall but now that season has elongated so we're having tornadoes occur earlier in the year and later in the year and and a great example is this the series of tornadoes we had in December of 2021. So we're having a longer uh, severe storm season, but also we're having changes to precipitation. When it rains, rains tend to come in heavier downbursts and there's longer time between rains. So, you know, a number of decades ago, you might get four one inch rains in a month, and now you're getting two four inch rains in a month. And so, and, and between those two four-inch rains, you're getting uh, hotter, drier weather. So as a result, we move from more, it's it's really crazy, but we're getting more flooding, but also more droughts. And and in the, on the east coast of the United States, this is really apparent, where the increase, if you just look at the most intense rainstorms, they have increased dramatically in the east. And so you guys are getting... More rain that is falling in heavier downbursts, which leads to more flooding. Now, in the western part of the United States, the trends are a little different. We're getting less rainfall overall and more drought. So, we have these two competing factors happening. The atmosphere is wetter, so it wants to rain more, but the atmosphere is hotter, that dries things out more. And if you're on the eastern side of the US, the wetting, the wettening is winning. And if you're in the western, third of the United States, the drying is winning. And if you're in the middle part of the United States, we're not really becoming wetter or drier, but we're having our rain occur less frequently and heavier downbursts. So the general rule of thumb is this. If you are in an area that is currently wet, climate change is going to make it wetter and more flooding. If you're in an area that is currently dry, climate change will make it drier with more heat waves and, and more droughts and wildfires. And this is true even if you don't live at the coasts. And so, so the warm ocean waters are really driving these changes of weather. And we're actually measuring these changes. We can see the increase of intense storms occur over time. And there's definitely an upward trend. And, and these trends have consequences. So in the last five years... In the United States, we've had over $750 billion of climate-related disasters, Mm -hmm. and whether it's hurricanes or wildfires or tornado outbreaks or droughts, I mean, these weather events are becoming extremely expensive, and the costs are rising year after year after year, and these costs are not related to inflation. These are inflation-adjusted averages. So you know warming a warming world with worsening weather isn't just a, an abstract problem it's a problem that actually has tremendous consequences uh, to us as humans and and even if the extreme weather is occurring somewhere else like let let's take hurricane ida for example ida didn't hit my home state But I still uh, suffered from it because we're all interconnected. We have an interconnected economy, interconnected uh, social structures. So everyone everywhere is being affected by climate change, either directly through weather or indirectly through weather that occurs elsewhere. And that's one of the reasons why it's such an important problem to get our our hands around.
1: You know, I'm glad you mentioned everyone's affected because I've had innumerable conversations where they say, not my state, or that's a problem somewhere else. And that's really inaccurate, if not insane. I will say, relative to uh, warmer waters um, evaporating, more water in the atmosphere, I, I do know Hurricane Harvey, I believe it was 17, obviously in the Gulf. And the statistic that i re- reminded of is that in Houston and thereabouts, 30 trillion gallons of water fell. Uh, and now we have this phrase... Um, which I thought I'd never hear. Atmospheric rivers is is the phrase I've been hearing um, when you read about these uh, uh, intense downpours, particularly those that last over a fairly significant period of time.
0: Yeah, that's right. And, and so the point you're making is great. In fact, I was on a research team that did one of the studies of Hurricane Harvey, and we looked at how the warming ocean in the Gulf contributed to that added rainfall. I mean, for for Harvey, the biggest damage was rainfall. And it is clear as day when you look at the data that the warm the human caused warming of the Gulf of Mexico contributed significantly to to the rainfall that happened in with Harvey and of course the economic consequences. And so you you're exactly right. This stuff is affecting everyone everywhere. Now what have we been talking about David is just the general warming of oceans i haven't even gotten to amok uh so are you ready to go there
1: (laughs) yes let's do it and i will just say if correct me if i'm wrong relative to harvey the month that it occurred as i recollect my reading the the comment was the gulf had never been as warm as it was when that hurricane passed over and it was something like the gulf waters averaged something like 78 degrees and they'd never been that warm that period of time so that helped intensify so let's go to amok
0: yeah, so your description of AMOC was really good and just to remind people AMOC is an abbreviation AMOC and it stands for uh the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation. And what it all it means is a the ocean actually has rivers in it. It has flowing currents. Think of the Gulf Stream as an example. These areas of um the the ocean that flow really fast and they carry water with them so there's this gulf stream that or uh, that passes across the eastern coast of the united states and then uh, uh, crosses the atlantic ocean and ends up by europe uh, in particular by england and ireland and let's think about the journey of that water uh as that water starts out in the tropics which is the warmer part of the planet since the water is warm, a lot of it evaporates. And as a result, the water becomes salty. So warm water tends to be salty water. Now, warm water, you, you've heard the phrase hot air rises or heat rises.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And and that refers to as you heat fluids up, whether they are gases like air or liquids like water, they, they tend to be more buoyant and they like to rise. So hot water likes to sit at the surface of the ocean and cold water likes to be at the bottom of the ocean because it's more dense. Now you have to add to the fact that salty water is more dense. So it, I don't know if you've ever swam in a, in a lake like the great salt lake you know, or in, even in an ocean compared to an inland lake, it is much easier to stay floating right, in its salty water. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. So you have two things happening. You have hot water that is salty the salt makes it want to drop into the, deep into the ocean, but the hot temperatures or high temperatures makes that water want to stay at the surface. Now, as that water flows from the east coast of the United States up toward England, it, a lot of it evaporates, but it also gives up its heat. You know, it's flowing from the tropics to uh, northern latitudes, you know, near Greenland. Mm-hmm. And so it's losing heat and it's cooling down. And at some point, it loses enough heat so that the water loses its buoyancy and it falls to the bottom of the ocean. Sinks, right. Yep, it sinks. That's right. And once it sinks, it takes a U turn and it starts to flow southward. So there is a, it, it's like a conveyor belt, there's a surface current that is buoyant flowing northward. And then there's a deep current that is dense flowing southward. That current is incredibly important because that that current is the reason why England has mild temperatures with a lot of rain. England and, and Minnesota, which is where I live, have about the same latitude, but we have very different weather and that's because of the ocean currents. Now, one of the things that we're concerned about is that circulation pattern, that U-turn, uh, turning off. Now, if it turns off... Or slowing that, down,
1: correct? Slowing Or
0: down. slowing down, right, right. Or, or becoming weaker. If it, if it turns off or becomes weaker, it means that you will have less heat being transferred by this ocean current, which means in Europe, you actually could get colder, more stormy weather. Mm-hmm. because you're going to lose that warm ocean water. Now, why would the AMOC, why would this current slow down or stop? Because the as we, we're melting so much ice in the Arctic. Uh, we're melting both sea ice, that's ice that's floating in the waters. So the North Pole uh, doesn't have land. It's just open right, water. Right. But there's a ton of floating ice, which is salt-free. And as that melts, you have unsalted water uh enter into the ocean current in addition we have greenland which has a huge ice sheet on top of the land and as that water melts the water flows down the ice sheet and into the water so essentially we're injecting cold unsalty water into the atlantic ocean and that cold unsalty water because it doesn't have salt it will change the buoyancy of the water that's already there, and that could interrupt this current. So uh, in a nutshell, we have a a current of water, currents of water flowing around the ocean. Climate change can interrupt those currents, and if they do, it'll change weather wherever the currents go. Now, there is some real evidence that the AMOC is weakening, uh, and we need more data to really tease out how much of it, how much it's actually weakening. I mean, these things are hard to measure because you need temperature sensors in crazy places of the planet and especially deep waters. So it's really hard to make accurate measurements, but currently uh, it appears that the AMOC is weakening. Let's hope that it doesn't, or let's hope it doesn't weaken very much, but it is a big concern because it would throw weather, especially in the Atlantic region's uh, up in the air and scattered around, and totally change the weather patterns. So we're, we're looking at this carefully, uh, and there's some good researchers working on it now. Uh, but it doesn't look uh, it, 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 it. It does look like it's weakening, and it doesn't look like it's a good story.
1: Yeah, not promising, right? Uh, Correct. I, I will. I just looked this up recently. When you talk about, you mentioned the Greenland's uh, Greenland's ice sheet. It's seven hundred thousand square miles, one to two miles deep, that's a lot of ice um yeah it's yeah, and it actually it's it if
0: that ice sheet melts and it's is this started to melt, but if the entire ice sheet melts, ocean levels will rise by about seven meters, or what is that about twenty three feet
1: right more than twenty one feet right We have time, and I do want to uh ask this last question because this one is particular I have a parochial interest in this, and this is this question of building resilience now if you look at federal healthcare policy to the extent uh federal policymakers in healthcare have addressed um this issue much of the discussion is about building resiliency meaning anticipating preparing building resilience for changes in climate weather uh, weather disaster occurring events etc so uh i know you wrote uh you had a piece uh again in the guardian a few years ago where you provided some statistics about uh, the difference in so many uh, centimeters of sea elevation rise and what that cost difference means. Uh, This piece, uh, you looked at the difference between warming at 1.5 Celsius and 2 degrees Celsius, or the difference between uh, sea uh, level rise of 52 centimeters to 63 centimeters, and that cost difference was a whopping trillion-plus dollars. So, um, feel free to comment on that. But really, my question, moreover, is: Is it at all conceivable that we can afford, relative to sea level rise, afford building resilience?
0: Wow, that's that's a tough question. Uh, and so, maybe I'll I'll just start at the beginning. How do we handle climate change? There's really two ways. Uh, Two things that we have to do simultaneously: we have to mitigate it, which means we have to try to slow it down.
1: Right, take take emissions out of the air. Right, yes.
0: Yep, that's right. Yeah, let's let's try to stop the problem from happening and slow it down so that the changes happen less rapidly or they don't happen at all, and and that gives us time to react and it time to prepare and it lowers the cost. So mitigation is important, and to mitigate it's really easy. You just use less energy, use energy more wisely, or use green energy. And and the great thing about green energy, the thing I'm optimistic about is the cost has come down so fast that green energy is now just as cheap as coal. In fact, sometimes cheaper. So today in the year 2022, you can save energy and the environment at the same time by investing in green energy. And that makes me optimistic. But in addition to mitigation, we have to adapt. And that means make our societies more resilient to storms. So I'm going to use Superstorm Sandy as an example, which hit out on the East Coast uh, Mm -hmm. in 2012. Correct,
1: yes. Uh,
0: Superstorm Sandy, as I recall, cost about $65 billion. And a a number, a, a portion of that money went into making the buildings and infrastructure more resilient to flooding. So there was a lot of work on subways and the electrical systems and subways. And essentially create buildings and houses and and living spaces that when natural weather disasters happen that are sparked by human emissions, uh, let's make sure that they don't wipe out our cities. So they don't wipe out our homes. And there are instances where you can mitigate. A great example of mitigation is in new orleans where after katrina katrina saw the uh levees fail the levees were rebuilt and those levees have withstood hurricanes since katrina so that is an example of of adaptation you're changing your infrastructure and making it more resilient but there are some cases where you can't uh, adapt Um, so if norfolk has a large marine base you can't how do you raise How do you raise the ground levels? How do you raise a city? Uh, Even a better example is Miami. Mm -hmm. Miami is a city that is now experiencing localized flooding with high tide. And that flooding is going to continue. And we're going to have about a meter of sea level rise in the next hundred years. One meter, so just over three feet. There are 150 million people in the world that live within three feet of sea level rise that are going to have to relocate. There's 20 million people just in Bangladesh. Let's think about Miami. Let's say that you add a meter of sea level rise. What does that do to Miami? Can you really relocate a city? No, you can't. Can you build seawalls around Miami? No, because the ground is porous. The water will just come up through the ground. So there are situations where you can adapt And there are situations where adaptation is fruitless. And at the end of the day, tough decisions are going to have to be made. And a lot of money is going to be spent trying to make cities and, and infrastructure more resilient. In some cases, we'll be successful. And in other cases, we won't be successful. But in terms of smart investment, it is always cheaper to mitigate than to adapt. It is always cheaper to slow the problem down than to adapt. I mean, th- as I said earlier, in the last five years, we've lost lost $750 billion to climate-related disasters just in the U.S. Where would we be had we invested $750 billion in clean energy? We'd be in a in much better world. So we, we, you're right about resiliency, uh, resiliency refers to making our homes and our cities more resilient to climate disasters and we certainly have to plan resiliency but we also have to mitigate it at the same time it's like uh, walking and chewing gum and I think we can do it
1: well thank you that, I, uh, I appreciate that answer because uh, from what I see um, at least from the federal policy's perspective to respond and, and, and uh, uh, execute Um, I'm less optimistic, but with that, uh, professor Abraham or John, we're at our time. So I, I know these are very large questions and we couldn't give, um, a great deal of attention probably to, to most or any of these, but I do appreciate this overview. Uh, very helpful. Um, I'm, I'm assuming you'll be looking at 2022 temperatures. And I, since I mentioned this and I didn't get to it, but just quickly, I noted that we saw such warming in 2021, Despite this uh, La Nina event. So, I'm assuming uh, whether it's uh, La Nina or Nina doesn't matter anymore.
0: Not for oceans. Um, so, and, and just to clarify, we measure ocean temperatures because those are the most important temperatures to assess our planet. Right. People also know about what are called uh, surface temperatures, which is air at the Earth's surface. And and those are warming too. They tend to go up and down a lot more just because air temperatures change. Like next week in Washington, D.C., you don't know what the temperature is going to be. You don't know what it's going to be in two weeks. But I can tell you what the temperature of water is going to be because water holds its heat for so long. So um, in addition to our ocean temperature studies, there are also people looking at air temperature studies. Now, air temperatures, because they go up and down each year, don't set a record every year like oceans do. But over time, they are clearly trending upwards. And every few years, we break a new record and and the trend is upwards. So whether you're measuring the air or oceans, the same story is being seen.
1: Okay. Well, thank you again, John, for your time. I'm very appreciative. Pleasure to have me on. Thanks.
0: You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.